0: Welcome to the CT Startup Podcast: an Inside
1: Perspective on the Startup Ecosystem in the Great State of Connecticut. I'm your host, Michael Kaufman, and with him is Dave Menard from Martha Carolina. And today we have a wonderful guest: the guys from Albatross Productions. Uh, David Ritter and Tim Kerr,
2: guys. Hey, guys. How's it going? Great to be here. Yeah, good to be here. Yeah.
1: Glad to have you here. So you guys have a really interesting story, and, and I want to get right into it. So I, uh, I met David, what, two, three years ago now? Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, you were graduating from UConn mm-hmm. and trying to figure out what you wanted to do, and you told me that you had an idea about starting up a drone video company. Mm-hmm. And uh, you had a good friend named Tim, who I then got the pleasure to
2: meet.
1: Uh, tell us what happened from there.
2: Yeah, so Tim and I have been uh, working doing video production uh, for a little bit. And uh, during lunches, we kept talking about this idea he had uh, for the golf industry. Yeah, we
3: we saw the advancements in drone technology, and no one was really going the golf direction. I'm a huge golfer, played college golf. It's been a passion of mine for a long time. And uh, it seemed like a fairly obvious way to use this new technology, and nobody was doing it. So we uh, we started that up, went through the whole process, talked with uh, with Dave here, found out that there's a whole bunch of hoops to jump through, but uh, <laughs> which we're which all things the time. time, time around. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Things it's have a, changed two or three times since we started.
1: So I'll put in that. I mean, it's a fascinating industry. I mean, because I mean, drones went from being completely unregulated to being thoroughly overregulated, um, <laughs> and uh, and the regulations kept changing. So. Uh, I know, you know, you guys were trying to figure out how to comply with the first set and then they launched a second set and you want to be a commercial uh, drone uh, videographer, you need to, uh, you, know, you need to have a commercial pilot's license and uh, is that a, is a personal? No, it's not a personal. A, a,
2: a private pilot's license. A private yeah. pilot's license.
3: And Still, solar. you got to learn how to fly a plane to fly a drone. It's a little bit silly. <laughs> yeah, and, and then you
1: got to go <laughs> and, then, and, and you have to register with the FAA and get permission from them to run a commercial company, which you guys have filed the registration.
2: And, mm-hmm. and yeah. David,
1: you just moved so you
2: could start learning yeah, how I'm to in fly. in New Haven now and uh, starting up flight school soon. So looking forward to bringing that to fruition. What's the process with flight school? Like how many hours do you actually have to put in? So there's, there's ground school, which is sort of either you can take a class or there's like software you can get and just <laughs> test through everything. Uh, then you take the test. And if you pass the test, then they actually allow you into an airplane. <laughs> and then uh, from there, it's a minimum of 40 hours in the air with an instructor, uh, 10 of which actually are solo hours. So even before you have a pilot's license, you're supposed to be flying like cross country on your own. Uh, so, yeah, this is overkill, but yeah. I guess
0: the benefit here is you'll be able to fly. A Dave, plane. I, I kind
2: of always wanted to do so, yeah. I'll,
3: I'll take it. Uh, David's been saying, Hey, I can like I can bring somebody, you can come up and fly with me. I'm like, Listen, you have to have a whole lot of hours. <laughs> yeah, like I trust you with a drone. <laughs> yeah, we, I don't
1: know if I trust yeah. you with a plane. We, we, we,
3: we'd much <laughs> rather, <you> <laughs>
1: exactly, I was
3: exactly. Gonna say,
1: we'd much rather you die alone than take us <laughs> <out> with you. <laughs> yes. But Dave's free on that first slide. Yeah, yeah, right. right. there, <laughs> there we go. That's right. Yep. His lawyers are known for their high-risk business activities. <laughs> <laughs> Got good life insurance, right? <laughs> um, So, that's, No, it's fascinating. I mean yeah. I mean, so you so you're going through that process. Um, and and it's it's entirely totally unclear. I mean, you're it's sort of a strange profession at the moment. Uh, I mean right now there are there are lots of commercial drone video companies out there doing things. Um, not or we're not sure whether it's legal or not, mm-hmm. frankly. Um but everybody's applied for the FAA uh you know permission, which is just running slow.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. like everything. I mean government related. Yeah, it <laughs> takes uh, <laughs> takes a few
2: months to, to hear back. So
1: But this led you guys into some really interesting directions. I mean this is where you started from, but but the the where your story goes is pretty fascinating. So what was the first sort of interesting place? Outside of the golf course, not that golf is
2: an interesting Tim. I apologize. <laughs> well, we we got a call from a friend who'd been working in Nashville for quite a while as a sound engineer with a, a band down there called the Annie Moses Band, and uh, they were going out to Seattle, driving cross country uh, for a show there, and they wanted to do eight music music videos along the way, and maybe a mini documentary, all kinds of things. So yeah, I mean, you know, they they were trying to like set their set their expectations,
3: you know, reasonable. Only eight videos over a two week period, you know <laughs> like a, on a very you know, small budget.
2: But it was a cross country trip. For free, so. which again I've always wanted to do. So this this business is just like ticking off one item after another in my bucket list. <laughs> <laughs> you get nothing out of it. That's right. <laughs> we we'll get that's that. Right. Right.
1: So how was that experience? Stopping everywhere. Now, now I, you have the drone. Right? I assume you have other cameras as well.
2: Oh, yeah. we, we were a
3: fully functioning production company. Uh, we also rented gear for this trip and had a, uh, a, a DP, a director of photography, uh, along with us yeah. that is out of uh, North Carolina. Shout out to Paul Haluch. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's actually walking the red carpet today. Uh, he's at the Boone Film Festival um, winning some awards. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Really yeah. talented guy. He's with. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: so, so for the geeks out there, what kind of cameras are you using? So for we that, have a Canon sixty, and on that shoot we rented a uh, Canon 1DC, one, one yeah. which was unbelievable uh, for the geeks. It shoots 4K, does slow motion, and uh, just has stunning color and uh, dynamic range. Yeah, And we're able to fit it just barely on our Ron- Ronin-M uh, stabilizer rig. So we're able to walk around, and it's like a steady cam, yeah. except a little bit lighter and uh, more flexible. <laughs> so we did all kinds of stuff, like there was a fallen uh, cedar tree, that was like, it was a giant, literally 20-foot diameter cedar tree. Part of what had fallen on the ground, and that was like 5 feet tall. And uh, so the singer was singing, doing her thing in a dress, and, and we were walking along, uh, tracking her motion on this uh, tree. That.
3: I don't think we ever took the camera off of this rig, like, we were shooting in so many crazy locations that it was just perfect. Um, yeah we filmed in Nebraska, Wyoming, Colorado, Washington and uh, I mean in the like the Washington coast is' just gorgeous yeah, yeah. so so cool mm-hmm. and we spent time on a cattle ranch in Colorado
2: that was amazing yeah, the Pawnee National Grasslands is yeah wide open country.
3: There was
1: one location you showed me it was just essentially all like fallen uh, white trees there mm-hmm. wasn't quite birch but I didn't know.
3: It was, uh, that, that was the Washington coast, uh, yeah. right by Olympic National Park, and the beach is just covered with huge, huge trees, uh, you know, driftwood, um, but they had, like, these massive storms come in and literally, like, tear down, uh, miles of coastline, like, eat into the, uh, the cliffs, and so all these trees wash back up, and it's just like a boneyard, I mean, it's, it's, it's wild. It's a, yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. So are th- are these videos out yet? Are they
1: someplace One of them or? is out.
3: One of them. Yeah, yeah. Thankfully, it's not our fault. They decided they wanted to to do the editing themselves, which was quite the undertaking. Uh, so they've
2: they've got one out there. And they're also they're also signed on with Warner, and so Warner oh, really? is uh, sort of controlling when things are released. They have, They're such a like prolific family. Uh, it's a family band. I don't know if we mentioned that. And uh, they've been to Juilliard and stuff. They're very talented. And so they're doing a million things. They have sort of the normal circuit that they do every year, and they're also working mm-hmm. on another project called "The Art of a Love Song," um, and that's like on PBS right now. Uh, they've got oh, their right. sort of fundraising drive video going, and um, so so we'll see when Warner might get just back be uh, on uh, releasing promotion all these. for this this
1: yeah. other album. Yeah, we'll so, have to link up one of the videos. I was going to say, you, we'll have you guys send us a link, and then we'll put sure. it
0: in the show
3: notes. Yeah, the deal, the deal. So what happened after that? You survived the road trip. We survived. We, we survived, yeah. We it was like two and a half, three weeks with the band and then we were, you know, out in Washington and said, Hey, why don't we call up some golf courses, see so if we can get some work. So we did a few jobs in Oregon. Um camped Gr- out camp ate a lot of ramen. Yep. Uh, uh, yeah. broke down two or three different times. And
2: uh, yeah, finally made it home. Yeah <laughs> five, five weeks. Five weeks later. Yeah. My car was a sort of integral part of the trip. We, we broke down uh, 20 minutes after leaving my house on the way out. <laughs> spent five hours getting it repaired. And we had to be with the band like at noon the following morning. 20 day.
0: minutes out too. That's, yeah, yeah. That's actually yeah. impressive. And I had
2: just had it in the shop. That was the worst thing. And just gotten like everything tuned up, ready to go. and it, and David pulled an all-nighter
3: the, the night before, trying to like get things packed. So he passed out, and I drove. What was it, twenty twenty-seven straight yeah, hours? we, we to, took to meet the band. We took eventually.
2: Uh, after I like caught up on sleep in the afternoon. Yeah. Wow. And well, I mean, I know I made it. I know I made it. Really to spr- Ohio, sprinting yeah. up and down the side of the highway, trying to stay awake. <laughs> <laughs> next trip, you could fly out. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Not quite yep. a road trip, yeah. but uh... uh-huh.
1: yeah, we started a the road trip. And so for, after that video, though, you, uh, you got involved in another opportunity. Was that the trip out to Cameroon? Yeah, yeah, so
3: we, we finished up that trip in uh, September, did kind of regular video production work for a few months here in Connecticut. Um, and while doing some commercials for Connecticut Tennis uh, and the Fairfield Tennis Club, um, we met this uh, woman, Betsy Dolphy. We were shooting a, a testimonial with her. Uh, she's a member down there. And five, ten minutes into the conversation, she was like, you guys seem pretty cool. You want to come to Cameroon with me in two weeks? <laughs> all, like, all right, then. Okay. Yeah. the idea. Yeah. <laughs> so I uh, ended up going to Cameroon, filming a, a mini-doc for uh, a nonprofit um, uh, called OTA, which is a, a, a tennis uh, camp, you know, club uh, in Cameroon. Yeah, I guess in the States they call it OTA by its acronym, but over there everyone says it's OTA. OTA. Yeah, yeah. So. yep. but uh, pretty pretty incredible program. Um, spent five days in Cameroon with a, a few other people, and uh, pretty wild. i had been to Africa, but uh, Cairo, I don't know if that uh, actually counts. Count. Yeah, I feel like it doesn't count. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Don't don't say that to them, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> but so, no, it was, it was wild. So
0: was that kind of the moment that set you on a different direction with the business and what you guys are doing now? Actually, we,
2: we already had sort of embarked in a new direction. From the start, we had hoped that, especially I had hoped, that the long-term uh, uh, destination of this business would be doing uh, documentary work. Uh, we thought music videos would be cool, too, mm-hmm. down the road, and then we got that gig over the summer. And, uh, but when we started, we figured that golf would be our, our bread and butter. Uh, but you know, with all the regulatory issues, that's taken longer to get going. And, uh, so the, the good thing about that is that we've been able to do the stuff that we thought we'd only like deserve in almost retirement. And yeah. After we put, like five or 10 years yep. in, like we can get to that stuff. Retire. Once you're you're see, retiring you're in five years. he got to start lurking, looking
3: uh, at his <laughs> He's a pilot now. Everything's going to be accelerated. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm just going to
0: be The five-year plan. That's right. oh.
2: I like it. <laughs>
1: CT Startup, where news happens.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: Got my Panama Shell company. And- <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> um, yeah, so so we were thrilled to, to basically have the music videos fall into our lap. And uh, in January, uh, Tim's wife, Amy, approached us about a, a really compelling story that uh, she was getting involved with, um, which is refugee resettlement in Connecticut. Uh, so she'd been volunteering with Iris, uh, Iris, not the other, the other thing, uh, which is a refugee resettlement organization in New Haven, Connecticut. And uh, she found out that there was going to be a group starting up in her uh, hometown uh, that would be resettling and co-sponsoring refugee families. So basically local citizens banding together uh, and taking it upon themselves to raise money and uh, handle all the log- logistics of finding apartments, uh, registering kids in school, uh, etc. For, for a refugee family.
1: That's fascinating. So these are refugees from all over the world. Right?
3: Yeah. So Iris resettles uh, families from all over, uh, but the the current crisis in Syria has has really what's uh, brought this issue to, to the forefront. Um, and uh, back in September, when everyone saw the pictures of Alan Kurdi uh, washed up in Turkey, that the young the young boy mm-hmm. um, who was photographed. Uh, it it kind of you know hit everyone that this was a huge issue. I mean, and, and granted, September was still you know four and a half years into the Syrian conflict, but it takes us a while to to start caring about things like this. And and so it finally, it was on the national consciousness. Um, and uh, so there there are sixty million refugees around the world. Um, there are four million refugees that are just coming from Syria, and then 7 million more that are internally displaced. So there are nearly 12 million Syrians, which is half the population, that are that have fled their homes and are looking for safety. Uh, 3 million are currently in refugee camps in surrounding countries like Jordan and Lebanon, and granted, like these countries are the size of Connecticut or New Jersey, you know. I mean, we're we're Mm -hmm. we're not talking big countries. We've got three million people flooding into really, really small countries. Um, So they're completely overcrowded, and that's why you see a lot of these asylum seekers trying to flee to Europe um, because there's just no more room in these refugee camps. And uh, and the U.S. has received, I mean, a tiny, tiny number of people. Uh, So then, after Alan Kurdi. More, more and more people started talking about how we had a responsibility to step up and then Paris happened. Uh, and San Bernardino happened, which were both blamed on refugees even though neither one was uh, had any refugees involved whatsoever. Um, and so at that point, things kind of got shut down. You had all these governors talking about how they didn't want any more refugees coming to their states, which isn't legal as Dave mm-hmm. knows. Um, and, and then you had Trump you know, kind of echoing this call and calling for a ban on Muslims and all that, you know, crazy stuff. Uh, so, Iris responded um, by first accepting a refugee family that was in the air, headed to Indiana, that was getting turned away, and so they came to Connecticut. Iris kind of got in the news. Uh, um, their director, Chris George, is an amazing guy, really big deal. And, uh, and so what they're doing is normally they resettle about 200 refugees a year, they're doubling their efforts because of all these other states that are turning them away. And to do that, it's a really small nonprofit organization. They've only got uh, 36, uh, 36 employees, something like that. Um, yeah, completely nonprofit. And so what they're doing is they started a, uh, a co sponsorship program where local groups all around the state in different towns outside of New Haven uh, work together with IRIS. To resettle families on their own, um, do all the fundraising, everything. I mean, a massive, massive undertaking. As we're as we're learning, um, and last year they had six of these groups that were interested in, in doing this. This year they've got sixty groups across wow. Connecticut and more doing training. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. just it's incredible to see to see the the vitriol and like the the neg- you know the negativity that's in the press and in the, in the media, and then to see the incredible uh, work that like everyday people are doing in Connecticut. Honestly, it, it made, it's made us proud to be from Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a great time to, to be here. Yeah, it, it, it,
0: You guys are following, there's two families that you've been following with the documentary, one from Iraq, yeah. who's been here for a couple of years now, right. and then right. this one from Syria, which just arrived recently. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm just wondering, what has that experience been like for the, the the Syrian family? I mean, this is literally a whole new world for them. And yeah. you know, you guys are following them around with cameras and getting to hear their story firsthand. What what has that experience been?
2: It's it's been a real challenge for them. Uh it's a you know new new country, new culture. Uh only one of them speaks English fluently. The others yeah. have, you know, varying degrees of comprehension. Uh and uh so that's, that's been a challenge. Uh, there have been all sorts of logistical issues, getting social security cards and all this stuff. People, you know, in Danbury, they don't know what to do with that at the social security office. So, uh, all kinds of road, roadblocks along
3: the way. Getting jobs is tough. I yeah. mean, a lot of people don't understand, uh, the vetting process, which is one mm-hmm. of the reasons why we're doing this documentary to educate people on that. In fact, going into it, we didn't know a whole yeah. lot. Like we were yeah, we really we excited of questions. to learn about that. And what we've learned is actually that uh, we're frustrated the opposite way that most Americans want to be frustrated. That the the
2: system is broken. It does suck. It's not letting people in fast enough. Um, yeah. Right now, this this family actually is split up. They have yeah. uh, an older son who somehow uh, the paperwork didn't get processed at the same time, and he's stuck in Turkey. Just complete like lo- logistical nonsense. So Yes. Yeah. You know, like he's cleared everything. He's good. And. Just waiting for things to come through and, you know, there's no knowing when that's actually going to get processed and he's going to be able to come here. So I've been, that's actually probably been the hardest thing on the family right now is mm-hmm. that they're, they're staying up really late to be able to talk with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's going, you know, he's missing them. Uh, it's very difficult for him and that's, that's stressing them out.
1: Is he safe? Um, is that a dangerous environment that he's, he's in? He's
2: safe where he is. Yeah, he's, yeah.
3: he's safe, but actually, uh, you know, it's not like this guy is, um, you know, living over there comfortably. He's in Turkey right now, so yeah, he technically no he's safe, but he hasn't. Mm-hmm. No, he's been locked away in the house in Turkey for pushing three years now, because if he's seen, the worry is that he's, you know, he's gonna be so, brought brought back and, uh, and forced to enlist in the Assad regime's army. So, so they, they're, you know. So he's been living inside the house yeah, for I three mean, years. So we're, we're not it's talking amazing. about like someone living comfortably in this right. whole, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's still—it's so really it's literally situation. in
0: a state of purgatory, just it, waiting yeah. in between the two places. Absolutely, right? I, uh, it's I, all go, just... I go crazy in my house after a day. Yeah, yeah. 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 And you have you have Netflix. Yes, yeah, a very nice house. And, exactly. Uh, that's <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Jeez, yeah. That's, another that's unbelievable.
3: Another thing that we we actually weren't aware of initially, um, and that's kind of been a surprise for us. Uh, honestly, made me feel a little bit stupid. Um, is that there's this feeling that, oh, there's, there are these refugees. You see these pictures of refugee camps. You, you think of these people coming from uh, really like impoverished situations. Uh, they're coming to America for opportunity. And, uh, and the truth is they're not coming here for opportunity. Uh, they're not living, you know, out in the desert somewhere. Uh, they're not impoverished. Uh, this family lived in a city right on the Mediterranean in a city that we would go to vacation mm-hmm. and uh, and they were upper middle class like really well off and so they're coming here and Great giving <laughs> up everything um, in order to to give their kids a chance at life not a chance at success and the American dream a chance at life yep. so um, it's actually been tough for the family just kind of getting used to being poor mm-hmm. to be honest uh, it's a totally, totally new way of living, uh, coupled with just kind of the American system and, and then the misconceptions of America
2: where, you know, it, it's been, it's been difficult. There very high expectations. Yeah. Uh, on, I mean, my mom actually was, uh, she wasn't officially a refugee, but she came to this country from uh, Czechoslovakia uh, just during the, the Prague Spring. She got out in time before the Soviets rolled back in. And she had all kinds of, you know, growing up. Uh, conceptions of what America would be, this land of abundance with like cowboys running around everywhere. Hollywood (laughs) America. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, you know, she ended up coming into New York on a very gray uh, day and then ending up in Bridgeport, Connecticut as like sort of the first stop uh, in their stay. And uh, she was very, very disappointed in, in what America actually was. You know, it was supposed to be this sort of Gleaming city where everyone's rich, uh, and then you know it's it's got issues just like anywhere else in the world. Uh, and so that that sort of recalibration of expectations is is something that I think a lot of people face coming to this country. So
1: so what what are available for jobs for for these refugees when they come in? I mean, so they're probably not doing whatever they were doing back in Syria or Iraq or anywhere anywhere else. And so and I imagine that sometimes it's probably tough to convince an employer to to take on a, a, someone who has limited English skills, and, and so it's being tough to find a higher-level job. So what, what do what they do for work?
3: So the, the good news is that, uh, especially in Connecticut and, and the Danbury area, which is where this is kind of all happening for us, um, employers have plenty of experience dealing with people who don't speak a lot of English. Uh, obviously, the, the Hispanic community is, is pretty huge. Um, and, uh, so that hasn't been as big an issue. I actually think that the, the bigger issue is that, like you said, the, the skill sets are, are different, you know, that their education means nothing here, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we're, we're dealing with doctors, lawyers, uh, you know, very, very well educated people who come here and it's like, wait, you know, you're doing manual labor, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, you're washing dishes. Um, so yeah, I think that a lot of the struggle is actually on the refugees and realizing that we're starting from the bottom and, uh, some people, you know, aren't able to do that kind of work because of, of age and, and health issues. And so that's been a, a struggle, but, uh, the, the younger son in this family has been able to get a job, uh, kind of working landscape. Um, and so landscaping is perfect He mm-hmm. you know, he, he did a, a whole lot more back home, but this'll, this'll be good. But I think the bigger issue is that employers just don't know what to think of refugees. They don't understand uh, that, like the background check that they run on all of their other employees, doesn't mean anything with a refugee and isn't necessary. These people just got a background check from every single right. branch of government yeah. for two years. Yeah. Like you know, your your background yeah. check it will will not find anything that the government didn't. So and there's no information on them, right? So there's a little, it's a little bit tough to convince employers these people are just like everybody else and they deserve to be treated like
2: any other person that you're going to interview. I think one of the, the challenges is the way that the the American system for refugee resettlement is designed. It's uh, set up in the 80s and it's a very uh, bare bones system mm-hmm. where there's minimal assistance that's very quickly tapered down to zero. And so people basically have to Learn English right away and get a job and be able to support themselves within six months. So that means that they don't have a whole lot of time for. Uh, I mean, they'll they'll do ESL classes, but uh, mm-hmm. they don't have a whole lot of time to learn the language or maybe get certifications here that would that would allow them to pursue work that's more similar to uh, what they used to do. They have to kind of hit the ground running and uh, and be making income as soon as possible. So often that ends up being uh, kind of lower wage work.
3: Which, which is a, which is a fairly normal experience, though, for, for immigrants, uh, you know, not just refugees. Um, my, my wife's parents, uh, came from, uh, Costa Rica and El Salvador. Um, both of them came as well-educated people and did, uh, fairly, you know, menial work so that their kids could have a chance to get educated, um, and, and go far. You know, I, mm-hmm. my wife's going to Yale this fall, so, you know, her dad is thrilled that, uh, mm-hmm. First generation's got that kind of opportunity. it's the same thing that these refugees are looking for. The, the parents are making massive, massive sacrifices for their kids. And so the family that we're getting to know, the Iraqi family here in New Haven, unbelievably talented people. I mean... They're all artistic. Yeah. I mean, just incredible to see what they're capable of doing. Um, they're all pursuing higher education and are all going to do extremely well. And so, but their their parents are sacrificing so that their kids can can down the road sure. benefit from from this opportunity. So, so as
0: these families get here, <clears throat> excuse me, as these families get here and they're going through that acclimation process, and you mentioned basically that support structure basically weans off pretty quick. Yeah. So, who are they relying on to? continue to adjust and adapt. So
2: they still have resources that they can reach out to uh, either through Iris, if they're in New Haven or through these co-sponsorship groups. Like ideally these, these relationships with the co-sponsorship groups are like, you know, multi-year, if not decade long relationships as these people, you know, but grow not, but not financially. And, yeah. So they have, they have other resources that they, they can, you know, for advice and support mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, emergency funds. I think there is this possibility of that too, but uh, yeah, things, the goal is to get them uh, self sufficient in six months. What about education? I mean, how how do young kids adapt if they come from
1: ref- a refugee situation and then they they get? I assume they have to take an English language course and they get enrolled in a regular school.
3: Yeah, they got to dive right in. I mean, like like anybody coming here that uh, doesn't have a firm grasp on the English language, that you're you're you know thrown thrown right in, expected to to pick up and learn pretty quickly. Obviously. Our school systems already deal with a lot of different languages, and so it's not something new. Mm-hmm. Um, and these kids are also just, like, crazy bright. I mean, this family's been here for three weeks uh, from Syria. The, uh, the eight-year-old had zero knowledge of English mm-hmm. before that. And in three weeks, he's already, like, understanding <laughs> nearly everything, like— He's playing it down, but I mean, it's it's amazing. Do it better um, than Dave. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, but I'm I'm telling you, I've been somebody will like, get it. Yeah, I felt like, oh man, like in three weeks, you know, this much English. And I still I still know zero Arabic. Right, like Shukran right. is like it. Yeah. thank you.
1: So that's, so that's amazing too. Because this eight year old is going to a brand new culture, and, and as you said, I mean, I'm sure even an eight year old in from Syria or Iraq has expectations about the U S. Mm-hmm. And, and then to go into the culture, and, and I imagine it's going to be difficult to make friends or to, to even relate in the school.
2: We'll see. I, I think actually in some ways because of the, the language profic- proficiency of the younger kids, like it, they just are able to pick it up so quickly, yeah. um, we're hoping that in some ways it's, it's easiest for the younger kids. Um, I do have some friends, though, that are uh, working at a refugee center in the Boston area, and uh, some of the Muslim kids have experienced bullying in schools. And that's, that's a major concern, uh, you know, sort of kids, uh, I don't know, picking up things they've heard in the culture or from their parents and projecting that on, you know, new students in their school. Uh, <coughs> so another another reason why we are shooting this documentary, which, by the way, I cannot believe
3: we have not said the name of our documentary. I, I was actually going to ask yeah, you, if you, right. if you if you've got the official Audrey, name. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, the name of our documentary is Welcome to Amrika. Uh, Amrika is the Arabic translation of America. Hmm. Um, and, uh, so welcome to America we're online. We're on, we're on Facebook, uh, check us out, like us, follow along this process. We're three and a half months into filming. Um, honestly, like the, the coolest part for us about this project is that we, we had this idea. We knew that this was an amazing issue. We knew it's something that we were passionate about. Uh, not only learning about ourselves, but educating people on, you know, going back to the the actual education part of things a huge element of of showing people these refu- and really humanizing these refugees is making sure that we're not dealing with you know kids who go into our school systems and are are bullied and mm-hmm. are treated like terrorists i mean really like the, the kind of things that are said to these awesome little kids is just horrifying and You know where that comes from. It comes from the parents watching the news and telling their kids that anyone wearing a, you know, hijab or saying that they're a Muslim is, you know, gonna blow themselves up. Uh, so, you know, it's, I think it's extremely important that we educate people because the, the truth is that we are, uh, we are not only responsible to be accepting these people, but the fear that we have about, about these people like, it's very much a self-fulfilling prophecy. They come here with an expectation, um, that America is, is either a great place or they've been told by the wrong people that, that they are gonna be hated in America. And the way that we treat them is, is gonna have a huge, huge impact on, on how they acculturate and, and how they integrate into American life and, and what they think about American people. And so the beautiful thing we've seen is that, regardless of the horrific damage Donald Trump is doing to our image uh, overseas, um, the work that people on the ground are doing has also had a huge impact. And actually, we found out that in refugee camps all across the Middle East, Connecticut is an is known. Like people know that Connecticut, this tiny state that they can't even pronounce, uh, is. Is a place that they're welcome.
1: That's really fascinating. Yeah. That's I mean, amazing. And, and of course, you know, uh, how we treat others always really defines ourselves. Absolutely. Right. right. Yeah. Um, despite that, I <coughs> still make a lot of fun of Mike in this company. But um, this, is, this is true.
0: But I've, I've adjusted, I've <laughs> acclimated, I have a support group. There, <laughs> you, there, there you go. That just means
1: I, I'm defining myself as a jerk. But
0: <laughs> but no, that, that's really great. That so so if people making. want to help out and be a part of this and, you know, have. You know, help these refugees. What can they do?
2: Yeah, we're we're putting together a sort of impact guide uh, on our website, which will be available shortly. Which will kind of tell people how they can get involved. Either you know, donating. All these organizations Mm -hmm. need funds to to work and uh, and thrive. And and also, you know, there's plenty of ways that people can get involved. These co sponsorship groups need everyone from someone who's going to you know run the operations and keep track of the books to people that just have a pickup truck and can help moving. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's really many different levels of involvement that are, that are possible. And that's, that's one of the other things we're hoping to do is have local screenings uh, that show uh, a little bit more kind of, we'll edit the material a little bit differently so it'll be a little bit more informational uh, than, than the final doc will be and, and kind of go into some of the details of how the refugee resettlement process works and how these organizations work uh, so that people can, can learn about it and hopefully get involved. And we're hoping to do those screenings. Uh, all around Fairfield and New Haven counties. In, in the, in the coming months. Yeah. This yeah. is, this is way ahead of
3: the release of the full doc. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. it is so cool. This, this co-sponsorship, um, program that Iris is, is, is starting. And also Iris is not the only, uh, organization in Connecticut that, that resettles refugees. Um, there's ICON. There, there are a num- number of other, uh, but Iris is who we're really working closely with. And they're, they're the one that's resettling Syrian refugees right now, uh, at least most um but what they're doing is so cool because before you'd really have to either donate or come to New Haven and and you know uh do what my wife did and volunteer with
2: Iris which um, is awesome and I mean, a lot cool of people do to it. Do and a it's, lot has been really right. encouraging. I've got actually current roommate just moved in with him. Found out that he had been volunteering with Iris for yeah. like several months. But it's here in New Haven, yeah. and that's it. The the great part about the co
3: sponsorship program is that now you've got sixty different groups all across Connecticut in you know anything from Danbury to Wilton to uh, you know. I mean, they're, they're all, all over the place in, uh, cities, in kind of backwoods towns. Um, and so no matter where you live, it's likely that there's a community that you can tie into that also cares about this issue. Um, and going back real quick to kind of the, the long-term support aspect, uh, six months is really like the limit. Uh, and in fact, many of these families are asked to, to get, uh, to get going in three months. Um, but beyond that, it's really so important to tie them in with the local community, uh, both, both, uh, people in the co-sponsorship group and outside, you know, that the, the local, if, if they're, if they're Muslim, tie them into the, the local Muslim community. Uh, they're, you know, very, very large Arabic communities, you know, all throughout Connecticut. Um, a lot of these people are Christian too. So, uh, tying them into the Christian communities, there's, just like anyone would do when moving to a new place, mm-hmm. developing these relationships uh, and and networks, support networks, is huge. So that when it comes time to be self-sufficient, they're not on their own.
1: Mm-hmm. So you went from <coughs> drones to documentarians in, in the space of a few short years. Uh, no, it
3: in place of eight months. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's a, that's amazing. Uh, and so we're... Uh, I know you guys are going to be working on this documentary for a while, yeah. but but what do you hope is next? What are you looking forward to doing?
2: Well, we're looking forward to uh, being able to use the drone and uh, doing doing some uh, work for golf courses this summer. Mm. Really looking forward to that. Um, we'll take music video work. We've, we've got a few people that are, are interested in that as well. Uh, we've also started doing a little bit of virtual reality stuff with virtual tours, uh, yeah. basically scanning in art galleries or businesses and... You're able to go in a browser and just walk around, basically. Uh, It's interactive. You can have sound video embedded inside. So if you have a TV screen, like in an art gallery uh, or a museum exhibit, you can have that actually playing. Um, And so that's, we're we're kind of uh, have a number of different directions we're interested in pursuing uh, with the different technologies we've got. So what's the most
1: exciting technology that you guys are either it's out of the market
3: now or that you're
1: looking forward to coming to fruition soon?
2: Hmm.
3: I mean, the the drone stuff is incredible. It continues to accelerate. I mean, the changes even in the past year have been huge. Uh, the, the, the coolest thing about the, the rig that we use and, and the thing that sets it apart as really a professional rig as opposed to the stuff you can buy in the Apple store now um, is that it actually takes two people to fly it? You know, you got one person operating the camera, full DSLR shooting four K, um, and another person flying the drone. Um, but I think it's maybe VR that uh, that we're kind of looking forward to seeing how that continues to to progress and develop. Um, I'm I'm not sure that I I love everything I've seen yet. I think that just like the drone stuff,
2: in the next year or two. It's going to really explode and, and, and new, new yeah. uses are going to come out. Things are very early stage. It's like the invention of cinema where, uh, you know, one of the, I think it was the Lumiere brothers and one of their showings in a, a theater. There's a train at a train station coming towards the platform. And the story is, I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but the story is that people actually ran out of the theater screaming <laughs> because they were so terrified by this moving image. And I, I think. And then there are a whole bunch of things that had to be developed. You know, uh, the syntax of editing. Like sure. right now, we're very literate in how film works, and you can have these, you know, one-second clips juxtaposed, and we're able to piece it together and understand what's going on. That's actually not something that's sort of built in and, and is necessarily intuitive for, for human beings. That's something that's developed over time, and the same the same process needs to take place in VR. Uh, so we actually we're talking with some other filmmakers that have done a uh, they did a documentary called Salam Neighbor uh at a refugee camp in Jordan and uh we're we've interviewed them a few times and, and uh are looking forward to, to talking with them more but one of the things we kind of were shooting uh shooting things and shooting the breeze and uh we we're talking about VR. Mm-hmm. They just uh completed a VR project that's now in the Holocaust Museum in uh, oh, really? in Washington DC and it's on uh the Syrian refugee crisis and the Syrian civil war. Uh and they they've done some some very interesting things with VR directing your attention uh that's that's probably the greatest challenge is uh you know whenever you're producing uh some some media you're editing and you're trying to sort of curate reality. you're telling people what's important yeah you're trying to curate reality down to uh some, something that's important and uh so the challenge of vr is that you can't cut you can't keep Switching from one shot to another in girls, a exactly. in a three hundred sixty degree immersive environment, environment. Yeah. so you can see everything. Yeah, right, right. Which
3: means that you may be looking in the completely wrong direction. Like as, as a right, filmmaker, I mean, you know, something. yeah. Think of think of watching, just like uh, we you know we've had movies that have kind of broken ground over the past you know few decades, and even things like uh, uh, Avatar movies like that that have wowed people when they first came out. Mm-hmm. There is going to be the first VR movie at some mm-hmm. point, but think about what that's going to take. Like you can watch that movie so many times and see something different every time. And then you might, you might not see what the director was hoping you'd see. So right. there, there's a whole lot that needs to happen. I think with the tech, it's also a bit, I, I find kind of disorienting, like not, not everyone loves the yeah, experience. Those cardboard
2: things are, they're
3: still not. I
0: have the Google cardboard at home. I got it at an event, but I was going to say uh, New York times did uh, a VR experience almost like a documentary uh, about a Syrian refugee camp, and it was the same mm-hmm. thing. You're walking mm-hmm. around, and, yeah. you know, You, as the viewer, you're really not sure what to look at, so you're just spinning in circles the whole time, yeah. hoping you're not missing, you know, mm. what's supposed to be the most important and thing. And then but getting dizzy while you're yeah, at it. Yeah, but it's an unbelievable experience, and it, it really mm. wows you well, at the look, size of some of these places. I mean, the next level
1: mm. sets have been released. The Oculus Rift and mm-hmm. the HTC Vive both came out uh, yeah. in the last month or so. Mm-hmm. Um, the PlayStation VR mm-hmm. is coming out. Right later this year. Uh, I mean, that's, you know, I, I'm actually kind of curious to see which sets people write for. I mean, there are three different. Oh yeah, the developers are going to start going crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
3: It's going to be wild, the stuff that comes out.
1: It's not, it's not like it's easy to port stuff over, I would imagine. It's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Yeah.
2: I think the 360 video is a little bit maybe easier. It's just a matter of sort of processing the video. Uh, but yeah, the, the interactive stuff is going to be much more difficult to to port over.
1: So is there a, uh, Sort of a three, uh, yeah, a VR camera rig for a drone. Can you? Do they have? Yeah, that? there are.
2: I mean, G- GoPro just came out with uh, a rig. Um, forgetting the name right now, but they just came out with it. I think this week. Did they? Yeah, yeah, yeah I saw yeah, that. Okay, it's like a, yeah, about yeah. a week ago. Yeah, yeah. okay, and uh, that's that's quite interesting. Obviously, it uses a bunch of Hero fours uh, mm. configuration. So, um, I think Samsung just came out with one that I was that I was looking at about a month ago. Uh, that's that's pretty impressive. Uh-huh. So I think I think any of that. Uh, could be could be mounted on a drone. That's something you know, we, love we to yeah we we we've, we've, yeah. we've toyed with the idea of doing yeah. it. Uh, but at this point, we're
3: trying to just just get things off the ground. Period. But uh, yeah. notice the drone pun. Yes. Yeah, I
0: saw it. Yeah. I was going to address it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> I, I I always like talking to David because it's because uh, because you got. Did you see that? Did you see that? <laughs> <laughs> see what <I> did there? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Got a whole folder of uh, John puns. That's right. That's right.
1: So, you know, you've had a very interesting entrepreneur experience. You started your own company. You, you've, uh, I mean, I think many people would say that you've accelerated fast. Um, but you're, you know, you're obviously still taking huge risks here. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this isn't, nobody's paying you to make the documentary. And Not yet, right? <laughs> yeah. And so you're, you know, you're, you're still investing a lot of time and your own money and, and everything. How's, uh, how's the entrepreneur experience for you guys so far?
2: Yeah. Oh boy. It's, it's been a a challenge. I think, uh, one of the biggest issues has been, uh, just the sales pipeline and like being able to have the time to put in the time, uh, that you need to for sales to get people coming through the funnel. And, uh, thankfully referrals are starting to take off for us and that, that just took a little bit of time to develop. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's, that's been one of the, the hardest things, I think. Figuring out how to do that.
3: Yeah, I, I think that uh, David's had some prior experience with startups, um, and uh, and I w- I was fairly ready for for how tough it would be to to start the business. But I think the one thing that we didn't foresee was uh, the the golf market is huge, and and we were really excited about about jumping in um, and and really hitting the ground running there, but. Because of the, the different regulations and mm-hmm. also because of just the, the golf season, you know, in order to do golf all around the country and, and kind of do it year round, it's, it's going to take some time to, to build the, the client base and, and build that reach. Um, but we thought that the golf element would, would take off sooner. And, uh, so yeah, the, the tough part's just been building a client base from scratch, uh, mm-hmm. And figuring out just who the clients are. With golf, we knew who the clients were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, now we're, you know, working for a band in Nashville, going, you know, going to Cameroon for a, you know, it. <laughs> Doing work for a music yeah, venue. Yeah, a exactly. theater company. Yeah, like, I mean, stuff is everywhere. It's just not, it's not as easy to locate, you, you know, your, your clients.
1: So what are you going to do in, with the uh, documentary? How are you going to get that out there? You're going to do the film festival circuit? Are you trying to find a studio to release it? What do you?
2: Yeah, definitely festival circuit, uh, local screenings. Uh, ultimately, I mean, video on demand is yep. is everyone's dream. Netflix at this point, yeah. Uh, so there's there's kind of a process, and and there's all kinds of tricks to to playing that right and, and timing it right, going through each stage of that. Uh, so we're we're new to all of that. Yeah. But to get there, we have to to raise some some serious
3: funds. So uh, that's currently kind of the struggle is. We want to be uh, all hands on deck, filming mm-hmm. and uh, moving forward with this thing. But the the reality is that you've got to fundraise, and there's no way we can keep going with, without doing that. So we're setting up some different events, um, starting to fundraise online. I think we're going to be doing some crowdfunding, you know, Kickstarter things like that. Yeah. Not anytime soon. That's probably going to happen in the fall. Yeah, early fall. Um, but yeah, for, for this project to happen, we've still got to to got to got to get a whole lot of support. Um, but yeah, a- after that, film festivals, the whole the whole nine yards. Um, these guys that we've met uh, that did this documentary in Jordan, I mean, they just played their documentary at the Capitol building. So mm-hmm. you have no idea where things could go.
1: Well, I mean, when, certainly once the uh, movie comes out, you know, we'll have to have you back on uh, to actually. You know, be able to to talk about it and get that out there. Not not yeah. not normally a movie podcast, but we'll switch for a day. That'll be, uh, that'll be awesome. Hey, awesome. So uh, if people want to reach out to you and hire you for your services or get to know more about your documentary activities or whatever, how do they do that?
2: Yeah, so we've got a, a website, albatross.productions. Uh, and that's for sort of the video production company. And then uh, Welcome to Enrica, the documentary is found at welcometoenrica.com. That's A-M-R-E-E-K-A america uh and so that's probably the best way to, to reach out yeah uh
3: email is pretty easy just uh tim at albatrosspros.com um yeah i mean i at, at this point we're uh really focused on this doc so definitely welcome to america um
1: and are you guys on twitter or facebook
3: we're on facebook yeah yep welcome yeah. to america and uh getting getting twitter going um yeah, we can send you a link. Trying to trying to get uh, get the Clooney's attention, I think.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yes, we'll definitely post as much as we can in our show notes.
3: Um, I, I I know George, George is a big listener, so yeah. Oh yeah. yes, uh, he was on earlier. T- oh, wait, oh, he's yeah. he's texting me now. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for your time, guys. Really appreciate coming out. Yeah, this thank was so this much. was great. Yeah, thank you guys so much. No, we, we appreciate it.
1: Excellent. We'll really catch you up with you in the future. Sounds good. Good deal.
3: You've just listened to the CT Startup Podcast. You
0: can find us on iTunes or check out our webpage at ctstartup.com where you can find all our social media links. And please, please leave us your feedback. Special thanks to our production team, Kate Ruppart, Dylan Gilliatt, and Kevin Dobis, as well as our equipment and marketing sponsor, Murtha Kalina, LLP. <laughs>